Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome everyone to episode 48 of True Blue Crime. My name's Sean and with me as always is my co-host Chloe. How are you doing? (laughs) Good, but more importantly, how are you? It's been pointed out that I don't ask you enough um, or ever, in fact, so as a bad friend and (laughs) co-host... Um, apologies, and how are you? <laughs> yeah, I, I prefer it that way, not to be asked how I'm doing because I don't like too many questions coming my general direction. So <laughs> let's just keep it as as we always have for the previous 47 episodes, shall we? <laughs> <laughs> Back to me, good idea. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for asking. Uh, looking forward to the case today, something a bit uh, a bit different, but uh, before we, we get to all of that, we're very lucky to have a slew of new Patreon supporters, Chloe. Yeah, thank you and welcome to Amanda Williamson, Amanda, Monique Emily, Sue McKenzie, Mel Birdhart, Marto, Ryan Curley, Helen Thomas, Kerry Sawyer, Kevin McCormick, Monique, Brett Eddy, Lainey Dance, Jeremiah and Matt Hutchie. Thanks for the support, everyone. Much appreciated. And we actually got a a Blue Label episode uh, out now covering Renee Rivkin, the infamous gaudy jewellery-wearing stockbroker who was embroiled in all sorts of financial escapades, insider trading, insurance fraud, you name it. So that's out now if you want to jump across to Patreon and check it out. Before we get into today's case, a quick content warning, a bit of a trigger warning that we're going to be discussing uh, mass shooting descriptions and discussion around gun laws and mental health surrounding that. So heads up for the listeners to exercise self-care as always. Today we're talking about another university shooting, one we mentioned very briefly during our episode on the uh, on the Monash University shooting. We got some great feedback on that episode, right, Chloe? And I, I think people sort of knew about it but maybe hadn't heard the full story. That was the impression you know, we kind of got. So we thought it'd be yeah. interesting to look into another similar case we've had here in Australia from a few years earlier, similar in some obvious ways but vastly different in others, particularly when we talk about the offender and his motivations. We're heading back to just before the turn of the century in 1999. This was a big year for a number of reasons, not just the big Y2K buzz. 
The last ever episode of Hey Hey It's Saturday aired in 1999, Chloe, which was an, an Australian variety television institution, a very humorous and jubilant program. In contrast to that, stark contrast to the uh, funnies that the likes of Daryl Summers and Red Simons and crew delivered, John Bunting and Robert Wagner committed the most heinous series of serial murders in Australian history in 1999. Well, this was when the bodies in the barrels at Snowtown in the uh, disused bank vault were discovered in May of this year. A grisly find that shocked the country as the tale of two sick men and what was effectively their sport unfurled for the country to see. But in more popular and legally acceptable sports in Australia in 1999, the Australian cricket team won the World Cup, our national netball team also won the World Championships, and Tony Plugger Lockett kicked a mongrel drop punt through the big sticks to clock up his 1300th career goal, breaking Gordon Coventry's long-standing record. Politically, Prime Minister John Howard was raising eyebrows while simultaneously not maintaining his own. He proposed that the concept of mateship be introduced into the Australian Constitution that our Indigenous population be referred to as having inhabited the land rather than being custodians of it, and he also got his GST bill passed through the Senate. We also had a referendum in 1999 on the aforementioned preamble to be added to the Constitution and if we should become a republic, both of which returned a no vote. And closer to home for us, Chloe, and where this case takes place today in Victoria, Steve Brax took over from John Brumby as the leader of the Victorian Labor Party. He, of course, would uh, go on after this to become the uh, Premier. And it was in the Victorian suburb of Bandura where a disaffected, trigger-happy man would go on a deadly shooting spree within the campus at La Trobe University. Third of August, 1999. His hand trembled as he wrote, his sweaty fingers wrangling the pen as the words poured from his mind and became scrawl on the paper. I tried every legal way possible to find justice for being wronged. This is a warning to employers, politicians and corrupt men of authority. The little guy is getting tired of being used and shit upon with no avenue for fair play. Cry havoc and let slip the dogs of war. La Trobe University was established in 1964, the 12th university in Australia and the third in Victoria. Its principal and largest campus is located in the suburb of Bandura, a suburb of metropolitan Melbourne, 16 kilometres north of the central business district. The Bandura campus is one of several La Trobe has. They have others in Bendigo, Albury-Wodonga, Mildura, Shepparton and within Melbourne and Sydney CBD too. But Bandura is the biggest and the hub for all of the university's main courses, with the exception of education, pharmacy and dentistry. It occupies an area of approximately 660 acres or 267 hectares and at any one time can have 22,000 students on campus. It's actually the largest university campus in the Southern Hemisphere. As such, the many campus buildings are connected by raised walkways and there's a plethora of restaurants, banks, shops and bars. One bar is called the Eagle Bar. From pictures, it appears to be significantly revamped and modernised in recent times, 
But back in 1999, this little ramshackle venue wasn't the trendy modern hotspot on campus that it might be now. And it's where this tragic tale is set. So I feel it's important to get a a real vibe for this place. And what better way to do that than hearing a description in the words of a student from Latrobe during this time period. Now, this is a description of the Eagle Bar uh, that was written by Lauren Morton. She's uh, written this on the website weekendnotes.com. And I think Lauren really captures the vibe of this place perfectly. She says if uni bars were teenagers, Latrobe University's Eagle Bar would be the geeky boy picked last for footy and PE. He may not be the most popular and he may not be the best looking, but if you gave him a chance, he might just score a goal. So if you're up for a surprisingly good night, look no further than the Eagle. The Eagle may not look like much from the outside. Its exterior sports a sickly brown brick that may be a hint to the tipsy patrons waiting inside. Be sure to leave your dignity at the door when you head out to La Trobe University's Bandura campus as you'll find little use for it inside this rambunctious rave. This bar is by no means a highbrow venue, however, I would argue that this is of little concern to the lively patrons. Entry is free for La Trobe students, however, if you do not attend the university, you'll have to fork out a fiver. The decor leaves much to be desired, with drab 1980s architecture dominating the space. However, this again does not phase the patrons. Rather, it seems to add to the homely charm of the venue. The Eagles Playroom is probably the highlight of the bar, with pool tables, arcade games, and even the odd promotional girl filling the room. This is the place to be for the blokes, especially if the Jim Beam girls are paying a visit, but it's the dance floor where you'll find the ladies. The Eagle sports a multi-level dance floor that is littered always with coloured lights and erratic dancing students. This is probably where you'll spend most of your night, as the Eagle offers an awesome array of local acts that perform most Thursdays. The venue also features a garden under a retractable glass canopy, which is a great place to cool down after sweating up a storm on the dance floor. Of course, the Eagle is squirming with Latrobianites who have undoubtedly claimed this venue as their home away from home. As a result, you would very rarely find anyone over the age of 30 here. This isn't a place for a quiet drink with the mates. This is a rock'em, sock'em, drink-till-you-drop kind of place that may well leave some hazy memories in your mind, but sometimes that's part of the appeal. So Lauren goes on to say a few more lines about drink prices and, and whatnot, but essentially that captures the vibe of the place pretty well for our purposes, I think. On the 3rd of August 1999, 38-year-old Jonathan Brett Horrocks, a drama student, was preparing to leave his campus apartment at La Trobe to head to the Eagle Bar. This was around 5 past 11 in the morning, so Brett, as he was known, wasn't heading to the bar for a lunchtime drink. He had other ideas. Brett was a relatively intelligent man. He'd had a seemingly normal and stable upbringing, but he'd suffered from bullying throughout school and facial psoriasis further affected his self-esteem. At some point during his youth, Brett and his father had a discord of some kind, and after this, Brett wouldn't really have a father figure around during his formative years. He had siblings, but again seemed to struggle with a perceived lack of success in comparison to these siblings. All of this served to seemingly isolate Brett even more. He failed an entry exam into the police force due to a hearing difficulty, And then he travelled aimlessly for some time through Australia and New Zealand, working odd construction jobs. At some stage, Brett found his passion, 
and pursued study in the field of drama. He had anchored himself down at La Trobe's Bundura campus, studying with the Chisholm College faculty. He had gotten a job at the Eagle Bar, working for manager Leon Capraro as a barman and security guard. So things were looking up for Brett at this time, you might say. But behind closed doors, Brett was struggling with issues that had built up over the years. He'd been seeking psychiatric help with bouts of depression he was suffering from, and these sessions with his psychiatrist would take a dark turn when, in February of 1999, Brett was sacked from his job at the Eagle Bar for allegedly stealing alcohol. This followed a slashing of his hours just a month earlier. Brett's mental health following all of this really deteriorated, so much so that he submitted a work cover claim for the psychological injury, which was ultimately denied. Brett viewed all of this as quite the betrayal, and he told his psychiatrist of a pervasive sadness he was enduring alongside feelings of revenge. And not just feelings, Chloe, voices too. These voices were telling Brett to take retaliatory action against the Eagle Bar and the student union staff, who had failed to act reasonably and treat him with respect. Brett said the voices were telling him to bash these people, and he found the voices to be disturbing. His psychiatrist was naturally concerned with these thoughts, but that concern would grow to full-blown worry when Brett's thoughts turned from simply bashing or attacking people to shooting them dead with firearms. He began to mention feelings of isolation, bringing on dreams of killing people at the Eagle Bar out of revenge. He further referenced the Port Arthur massacre from just a few years earlier in these same sessions, alongside feelings of satisfaction once the dreams drew to their bloody conclusion. Obviously, the topic of doctor-patient confidentiality came up at this point, with the psychiatrist telling Brett she would breach this if she felt he was a danger to himself or others. But when Brett spoke of these things, he said them almost in a joking kind of manner, like he knew the ridiculousness of it all and didn't believe he'd actually ever act on these dreams. He assured his psychiatrist that she needn't be concerned and she believed him, but unfortunately, Brett's drama studies might have made him a better actor than anyone thought, because come the 3rd of August 1999, after scrawling the frazzled note Sean read in the introduction, Jonathan Brett Horrocks would turn these violent dreams into reality. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Brett left his apartment on the Latrobe campus at around 5 past 11 in the morning on the 3rd of August 1999, right after writing that note we covered in the intro, which ended with that Dogs of War line from the Shakespeare play Julius Caesar. Brett, stewing in the bile of his own lack of self-esteem and anger towards the establishment, stuffed the pockets of his acid wash bogan jeans with ammunition, 
and shoved a 38 calibre Smith & Wesson revolver down his pants before heading off. As Brett walked towards the Eagle Bar on the lower level of the University Union building, his thoughts darkened and he planned his next moves. The Eagle Bar wasn't open until midday and Brett knew that. That was all part of the plan. He was eyeing off three people who he knew would be inside at this time. Manager, Leon Capraro, bar employee, Sally Mitchell, and Kevin Coates, who worked in an office upstairs. He was the business manager of the student union. Brett, who looked like he'd been punching a solid diet of meat pies at this time, waltzed into the Eagle Bar and approached Sally, who was making a cup of hot chocolate. Hi, Sally, he said. Sally responded in a friendly fashion turned around and noticed Brett was pointing a gun at her. He then fired the gun straight at her. She fell backwards to the ground, but amazingly, she wasn't dead. In fact, she wasn't even mortally injured. The bullet, whether it was Brett's poor aim or simply a stroke of luck, only grazed Sally's upper right chest. Trembling and fearing for her life, Sally abandoned her hot chocolate and scurried to safety behind a nearby island bench. For whatever reason, Brett didn't pursue Sally though. Instead, he walked towards Leon Capraro's office to confront his former manager. Upon sighting Leon, Brett opened fire five times, hitting Leon four of those times and killing him. Brett then began to reload his Smith & Wesson before heading upstairs to locate Kevin Coates. During this time, Sally managed to escape from the bar and seek assistance, Word caught on pretty quickly, with Sally escaping and the gunshots undoubtedly heard throughout the building. By the time Brett had ascended the stairs of the union building to the second floor, staff upstairs were already barricading themselves in their offices in preparation for the oncoming attack from the madman downstairs. That was except for one man, a guy named Michael Tawney. He selflessly left his own quarters to go and lock the access door to the staff work area so this lunatic downstairs couldn't get in. Right as he did this, he encountered Brett at the door, revolver at his hip, ready to shoot down anyone in his path. But Michael didn't simply turn and run. He went towards Brett and attempted to disarm him. There were a number of staff on this second floor, not just Michael and Kevin Coates, and Brett had plans to shoot them all. As we mentioned earlier, his pockets were stuffed full of ammo, 45 rounds he had. But thankfully, it wouldn't get that far. Michael Tawney and a few other staff members who ran to his aid managed to disarm Brett at the top of the stairs. Brett managed to get one shot off, but luckily it didn't hit anyone. So Brett Horrocks killed one of his three intended victims, being Leon Capraro, but Sally Mitchell had escaped and Kevin Coates, who was the guy Brett felt was ultimately responsible for the injustices against him, they both escaped with their lives. Police attended and arrested Brett, and this is the picture, one of the only readily available online, of this terrible incident, the arrest. We'll post that on our socials as always for you all to see. Brett later said, I was hoping to kill seven or eight people, but unfortunately I didn't get around to that and I was hoping to be killed by one of the police. I didn't get around to that either, so I fucked it up completely. I intended to go and wreak great vengeance on several people in the union building for their non-ability to understand what was going on. Their employer relations sucked, so it was time to make myself a bit of an example to all these people that we weren't going to put up with it anymore. He would end up pleading guilty to the murder of Leon Capraro, guilty to attempted murder in the case of Sally Mitchell, 
and guilty of engaging in conduct endangering the life of Michael Tawney. Brett subsequently requested to be executed for his actions, as this was the only way of him repaying his heinous crime against society. And while he might have wanted to seem post-crime like he was filled with the milk of human kindness, I can't help but shake the feeling that Brett was full of nothing more than four and twenties, or maybe paddies, back at this time. We'll talk more about some comparable cases we've had in Australia in a moment, Chloe. Obviously, you know, we've had much higher death tolls in shootings, but I think in this case, you know, we still had one person murdered, one badly injured, and one whose life was in serious danger. They and all of these people occupying this building suffered an absolutely shocking crime here at the hands of a clearly unstable individual. And unlike the Monash University shooting, where it really needed a a deep look from a number of angles to get somewhere close to understanding uh, Alan Zhang's motivation for committing the act that he did, I think the motivation for Brett Horrocks in this case was plain to see. This was an insecure man, and not a super young man either, and he was angry and out for revenge. But shooting your ex-manager dead in cold blood and firing upon another one of your former work colleagues is no way to right your perceived wrongs, at least not to us rational human beings. So the devastating results of Brett Horrocks' shooting spree at La Trobe University were obviously felt across the community, particularly by those close to the victim, Leon Capraro. But one can't help but think that had Michael Tawney and the other staff not confronted and disarmed Brett Horrocks at the top of the stairs there, you know, how many more victims could there have been? Brett later said that he planned to continue beyond just finding Kevin Coates and wanted to shoot as many people as he could and then he wanted it all to end in a grandiose police shootout where he'd eventually be shot dead. He had 45 rounds, we know, shoved into his jeans, and he only managed to fire off seven of those. So it could have been a hell of a lot worse had those brave second-floor occupants not taken a stand, so kudos to them. Whenever we talk about a case like this, you know, the whole topic of gun laws and gun control will come up alongside other mass shootings we've had here in Australia. The big one being the Port Arthur Massacre, which Brett Horrocks himself mentioned during his counselling sessions. In 1996, when Martin Bryant went on that devastating spree in Tasmania, which left 35 people dead and 23 injured, the face of Australian gun laws changed forever. We spoke a bit about that in the Monash University case, so we won't rehash it all now, but really the talk of tightening gun control in our country began well before that even. Port Arthur was really the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak. But going back to the mid-80s, you know, we had the Milpera Massacre, which was an outlaw motorcycle gang conflict. That was in 1984. Then we had in 1987 the Queen Street and the Hoddle Street Massacres too. So, you know, this kind of thing had long been on Australia's radar, bubbling beneath the surface. The Strathfield Massacre in New South Wales too, that was in 1991. That was another Naturally, the reaction to what happened at Port Arthur and the swift action taken by then Prime Minister John Howard was understandable, nevertheless controversial amongst those wanting to maintain their rights to own and possess firearms. But when it came to this case and the Monash shooting thereafter, in both of these cases the perpetrators used handguns, 
The sweeping reforms and amnesty prior to this were largely focused on shotguns and rifles. It was 1996 that legislative changes known as the National Handgun Control Agreement went through Parliament, but it wasn't until 2003, after the Monash shooting, that a handgun-specific buyback bill was passed and implemented. And this has really been a living, breathing thing. Uh, 28 state and territory-based amnesties there's been since Port Arthur in 1996, and the first national one since immediately after Port Arthur occurred was actually in 2017, under then-Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull. It feels like we've had more Prime Ministers than uh, Brett Horrocks has had pies glow in recent times, but uh, anyway, getting back to Brett and what he's been up to since his imprisonment. And we mentioned the Hoddle Street Massacre a moment ago, a case we're yet to cover but will do so in due course. A snapshot, however, the Hoddle Street Massacre was a mass shooting that happened during the evening of Sunday the 9th of August 1987. It was in Clifton Hill, just near where Hoddle Street kind of intersects with the Eastern Freeway and Alexandra's Parade, a stone's throw from Melbourne CBD really. Seven people were killed and 19 others seriously injured and the perpetrator, who was caught after a brief chase in the nearby suburb of Fitzroy, was a then 19-year-old former Army officer cadet named Julian Knight. Fast forward to 2011, and Julian Knight, acting as chairman of the Port Phillip Prisoners Committee, decided, alongside a bunch of other shop stewards, one being Brett Horrocks, that their prison conditions just weren't cutting the mustard. Specifically, they demanded access to jelly. That's right, Chloe, as in I like aeroplane jelly, aeroplane jelly for me, a wider variety of potato chips and better quality sunglasses. This was following an earlier victory where the prisoners were able to secure the addition of gummy bears to the facility's canteen. Personally, I think the prisoners should uh, have all the weird flavoured chips. You know the ones, Chloe? Like Himalayan mountain goat crystals seasoned with balsamic sea urchin discharge, which we all know in our heart of hearts is just a fancy version of the humble salt and vinegar. I haven't come across that flavour. <laughs> In 2019, Brett Horrocks complained that two guards had used unnecessary force against him in two separate incidents. He won a victims of crime compensation payout for these incidents, which happened back in 2010. The Herald Sun reported on comments from one of Leon Capraro's relatives who said, quote, How does a prisoner in jail for murder apply for anything? It's a pity Horrocks didn't break his neck. These people deserve nothing. The more I think about it, the more angry I get. I think many of us can empathise with that feeling. Brett, now recovered from his broken arm in the aforementioned incident, is likely spending the cash he received on the expanded range of sweets in the canteen. He'll be eligible for parole in 2024. Today, some 100 metres from the Eagle Bar on Latrobe's Bandura campus, which has since been significantly revamped since 1999, there sits a memorial plaque in honour of the bar manager Leon Capraro, who sadly lost his life on that day in 1999. Leon actually had an award named after him too, going to the best tourism and hospitality student at La Trobe on an annual basis. Our thoughts are with Leon's family and all the victims who endured what they did that day at the hands of Jonathan Brett Horrocks. And that's a wrap for the case today, Chloe. Yeah, so I guess my thoughts on this one is that I'm glad that Australia has the attitudes towards guns now that they do. I think 
we see less and less of these incidents, luckily. And like you said, we're always thinking of the victims because I think the impact of being involved in something like this would be horrific and the mental health side effects of it would just go on for years, I'm sure. Um, I think, yeah, the fact that we see less and less of it makes me feel feel reassured, you know, overseas in America especially, despite, you know, their gun laws are very different. But like you said, some of the guns used in the cases we've talked about aren't necessarily outlawed or involved in amnesties. The, there just seems to be a stark contrast. It's not something that many people that I know anyway feel passionate about the need to bear arms. And I do think that it just leads to so much violence that, and, you know, I think this man was definitely unstable and put the right things in their hands. You know, it takes a person to kill someone, that's for sure. And, yeah, the wrong person with the wrong thing can really lead to some horrific stuff. Um, That's pretty much it from me. Not a lot to uh, add from me, Chloe. Just clearly just an unstable and angry guy uh, was Horrocks. Hopefully prison has done something to, you know, rehabilitate that. And as we said, you can't help but think about... um, Leon Capraro and his family have had to cope with the loss over the years, particularly recently in hearing that Horrocks had gotten that payout. So clearly some some hurt and, and frustration there, which is completely understandable. And we got such a good response to the Monash episode. You know, we thought we'd dig a bit and see what we could find on this case. It's certainly not anywhere near the amount of information out there about this one. Probably not the same amount of speculation and, and dissection around those other as- aspects surrounding the shooting you know, when it came to Alan Zhang, you know, he had uh, there was a lot more probably in the mental health realm to do with that. Um, but interesting nonetheless, this one, as we've said before, these are not common cases in Australia. Uh, they're ones that we certainly associate more so with our, our brothers and sisters in the USA where, you know, we unfortunately hear about a lot of school shootings uh, there, as you said, Chloe. But, yeah, look, that's it from me for this week. Yes, and on that note, let's move on to our happy thoughts. Yeah, I've got a really good happy thought for you. This Actually, it's not that good, but it's... It's more um, a TV-based one, which I knew you would be happy about hearing. Oh, it's my wheelhouse. Yeah, yeah, it is. <laughs> and uh, I don't really have those very often. But actually, um, my wife and I had, uh, we were watching this show the other night and it was, it's an Australian one and it starred that guy, uh, Aaron Pedersen, and and he, um, it was called Mystery Road. And I think it was from like 2013 or 14. But anyway, I must have yeah. got a little bit of a cult following because it, they did like a six-episode series of it in 2018 maybe. So, um, but, yeah, really cool. It was sort of like a, an obviously Australian sort of crime, noir, semi-Western sort of setting. Um, oh. Yeah, it was pretty cool, really good cast. You know, like Hugo Weaving was in it um, and, yeah, a few, few others that escaped me at the moment. But, uh, yeah, it was good. You know, not a lot of dialogue, really up my alley with those Sort of, uh, yeah, like I said, those crime noir sort of shows. So, yeah, Mystery Road. Check it out. It was pretty cool. Ah, and Hugo Weaving. He's got to be one of the best actors ever. He's so good. He was good in it too because he sort of played this role where, um, well, if anyone wants to watch it, I don't want to give it away, but, you know, you (laughs) form a bit of an impression of him early on and he doesn't pan out to be that way. So he's very, yeah, a bit of an interesting character in it. Oh, nice. uh, What's your happy thought for the week? Um, mine is that as life slowly and cautiously goes back to normal, um, that I've just been out of my house to do social things. So not that I've just even seen people, but that I've got dressed for a reason other than, um, to walk my dogs or do exercise, which feels really exciting at the moment. Yeah. 
Well, that's good. That's a back to the yeah. basics of uh, everyday life. Yeah, and, you know, as I said on our Patreon a few weeks ago, beauty hasn't opened, so my patch jobs aren't holding up and I'm ashamed <laughs> to go out in public, but I'm getting by. It's tough, but I'm making it work. <laughs> uh, very good. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at truebluecrime at gmail. You can join our Facebook group, which is called True Blue Crime Podcast, and you can find us on Instagram by searching True Blue Crime. If you'd like to support the show, you can head over to our Patreon page. The link is in the show notes. For $5 per month, you can support the current free content we make on the main feed and get our bonus monthly Blue Label episodes, one of which is just, has just dropped, as we said at the start of this episode, on uh, Renee Rivkin. So check that one out. Thanks again for listening, everyone. We'll catch you all again shortly. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.